friends, and welcome back to the To The Heights podcast, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Olivia Colombo, and I am a young Catholic changemaker who is on a journey of storytelling, as we will talk about in today's podcast, um, of young people in the Catholic Church and in the world um, who are truly reaching to the heights in their own lives and in their own ways. Um, and I am so overjoyed um, to introduce you to today's guest. Um, before I get there, I'm getting so ahead of myself. Um, the To The Heights podcast, if you've never tuned in before, is named after Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati, who was a 23-year-old young man from Italy um, who dedicated his life to secretly helping the poor and the vulnerable in quiet and beautiful ways, um, so much so that his family was shocked when, um, at his funeral, so many homeless people um, and very, like very poor and vulnerable people showed up um, to overwhelm his funeral in gratitude um, for all the things that he had done for them quietly and his family had no idea um, where all these people were coming from until they started telling their stories and the stories of how Pierre had helped them. His mantra, um, he loved mountain climbing, was verso le alto in Italian, which means to the heights. Um, so that is the namesake for our podcast um, and where we get this kind of prayer and reminder from. Today's guest is the wonderful and beautiful Abby Abrahamson. Um, Abby and I met when we were on the U.S. National Youth Leadership together, Leadership Council at Roots and Shoots together. Um, I've talked about it before, but quick little breakdown. Um, Dr. Jane Goodall, the one who did all of the amazing work with chimpanzees um, in Africa, in Gombe, um, she started um, or kind of in her wake, the Jane Goodall Institute was started and they have a youth empowerment organization and service learning organization called Roots and Shoots, which is, um, they have clubs in different schools and community centers and stuff like that around the world. Um, and it focuses on giving youth the tools to create change in their communities, um, through mapping, um, service learning, and just getting them to look around and see what the problems in their community are and giving them the tools to fix them. Um, we were both on the U.S. National Youth Leadership Council for Roots and Shoots, um, which comprise, is comprised by like roughly 20 um, youth leaders who are um, members of different communities, um, mostly different states, although there was um, the school that I went to, my friend Yanni and I both went to the same school and we're both on the council. Um, so there weren't too many cases of that, but Abby is also from Massachusetts. Um, and we met there. Um, we were roommates, our first summit together. Um, and she just has done so much beautiful work. Um, and it was truly a joy, um, to know her in that capacity, um, and to get to see her grow, um, and do all of these crazy, amazing projects, and I just so looked forward to hearing her updates all the time, and being in professional development calls with her, um, and learning alongside, um, we were the same age and grade, um, and we joined the council at the same time, and, um, she's just a special human being, um, who is so intellectual and compassionate, and, um, passionate truly um, and is just a sweet sweet friend and person so um, I'm so excited for you to get to hear a little bit about um, Abby some of the projects that she has done um, how just kind of what her story is and we talk about the importance of storytelling um, just so many beautiful sweet things here so 
Without further ado, here is Abby's story of reaching to the heights. I am here with a very sweet and amazing guest who I cannot wait to catch up with. Um, Would you like to tell me your name, your age, and where you're from? Sure. Uh, My name is Abby Abrahamson. I am 19 years old, and I'm from Rehoboth, Massachusetts. Yes, and Abby and I met when we were on the Roots and Shoots National Youth Leadership Council um, for several years together, which was an awesome, awesome time. We were roommates the first summit. Um, in where was it? Uh, Redlands outside of LA, um, which was a super cool summit. So, um, I think a good place to start would be to talk about um, a little bit of your background in activism, maybe how you got started, um, and then eventually we can end up talking about some of your favorite projects that you've done. Um, but would you like to give me a little background of who you are, where you came from, and how you ended up doing what you're doing? Sure. Um, it's a little bit hard to pinpoint exactly where my journey into activism started um, because I think I always had a passion for service um, that, you know, I, I remember growing up, I always wanted to start service projects of some sort, but wasn't really sure how to do it. Uh, but um, when I found Roots and Shoots um, through homeschooling lesson, um, so I was homeschooled growing up, um, I, I started looking at the different tutorials that they had and realized that there was actually a formula out there for constructing a service project that could be successful. And so I think Roots and Shoots was really the, I suppose, a big milestone kind of mm-hmm. in my journey towards setting me off um, into activism. And uh, my first project was um, just a really local community project. Um, I was planting milkweed seeds from my grandmother's garden and selling them to uh, raise money for the Monarch Butterfly Fund. Um, So that's kind of where it started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that. I remember hearing about that. And I don't know, you've done so many cool and amazing things since then with the council. Um, Yeah, I... I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, the four-step formula is something that I feel like becomes so ingrained in us once we learn it from Roots and Shoots. Um, (laughs) Do you think between the two of us, we could remember all four steps? (laughs) Probably. I think it's plan, right? I think it's map first, community mapping. Yep. And then engage is one of the steps, I'm pretty sure. And then the last one's celebrate. Yep. The third one's essentially like do the project, execute or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the last one is celebrate. And like, I don't know, I always really loved the first and last steps. And I agree that it like, I don't know, it gives you a way to do all of these big crazy ideas that you have and like things that you want to change about the world. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I've definitely, I feel like all of the youth leaders can all relate in the fact that we have these like crazy big ideas and like big passion and we don't always like know where to put it or how to put it um we just know that we want to like put it out there um yeah yeah would you like to talk about some of your favorite projects that you've done I'm thinking particularly feminine hygiene um litter prevention things like that yes um I think I have three main 
favorite projects, which are those two, and then also um, Cover by Cover, mm -hmm. which was a book drive. So I'll go through them kind of in chronological order and give like, a brief it. overview. Yeah. Uh, so I started Cover by Cover right when I first joined um, the National Youth Leadership Council with Roots mm -hmm. and Shoots. Uh, it was a project that I did with my brother, and uh, what we did was we organized a book drive to collect donations for the Children's Friend Organization, um, which is located out of Providence, Rhode Island, and they have head starts across the state. And um, it started out as kind of, we had, I think, maybe eight or 10 um, donation box locations, and um, our goal was to collect maybe a hundred books. Um, so that seems like, you know, I, I researched book drives and that seems like a good um, goal to have. And um, the community was really, really supportive, um, especially local libraries and even um, Roger Williams Park Zoo donated books from their little free library. And it ended up um, collecting 1,100 books, mm -hmm. um, which was really awesome. And that really sparked my um, interest in um, education and also, um, literacy and children. Um, so that's one of my favorite projects. Um, and then after that, um, around just about after that project ended, um, I remember just, you know, I went for a lot of walks with my dad that spring. And uh, I remember walking with my dog and she would, you know, constantly, she was a golden retriever and she would mm -hmm. constantly try to eat the trash on the side of the road. Yeah. And I started thinking, you know, if my dog, you know, wants this Cheeto bag, um, <laughs> what what is you know the wildlife in the area um doing with all of this trash like how are they living amongst it um and obviously it's not an ideal situation it's very harmful so i started kind of a plan to do a litter prevention project and i threw around a few ideas and came up with um a solution which would be placing three litter collection barrels on the walking route in town which is right where my dad and i walked and um it was a really simple um, kind of project outline. I thought maybe if those barrels were out there, then the people like us who are walking would have several places to pick up the litter, maybe more of an incentive yeah. um, to do that. And mm -hmm. so I proposed the plan to the Board of Selectmen because um, I had mm -hmm. to get approved um, yeah. to the barrels on town property. And uh, they approved the project, but also um, made a municipal position for me um, so that I could continue the project um, with the support of the town. Um, and so it kind of grew from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, around the same time, it was um, our town's 375th anniversary. And um, the committee that led that effort reached out to me and said that they wanted to have a litter cleanup as a uh, part of the celebration. They were doing a lot of events that year. Um, so I joined and we formed a subcommittee to plan a litter cleanup and we um, ended up having in April of 2018 a townwide cleanup um, where we picked up 15 dump trucks full of trash from the town which is a lot. A lot, um, yeah. Yeah and um, from there the committee just decided to keep going um, because you know the town was obviously enthusiastic about it and um, it obviously is an important cause, you know, keeping our town clean, not just for us to look at, but also for the wildlife um, and also things like the waterways. Um, we have like the Palm River Dam and the Palm River itself, um, which are important waterways in the area that need to stay clean. So um, 
we decided to keep going and now we have um, two litter cleanups a year and we also have smaller campaigns like we did a campaign um, to help people understand where reusable cups would be accepted at local mm -hmm. businesses. So, you know, sometimes local businesses don't feel comfortable um, accepting your reusable cup. So we went around and made a list of ones that do. Um, we also started a campaign to do, um, we sewed, we sewed handmade litter bags is what we call them, but um, they're like cloth. Um, basically bags that yeah. you strap on to the back of a car seat um, oh. so that you can throw your trash in there instead of out the window. Um, and we distribute those around town. We also did a fundraiser with um, trees. There's cedar trees, but we thought they were spruce trees, so it was called <laughs> Spruce Up the Town <laughs> um, because it went. Um, it was a great name. So um, I actually just resigned from that position yesterday because I'm oh. going off to college in the fall, mm. um, and the committee is going to um, continue the program, which I'm very excited about um, now that it's a sustainable um, program in town. So yeah. I'm very grateful for the committee and the town support. Yeah, um, yeah, that I remember, I remember being on a call and hearing that you had been given that position. And just like, I remember Hope in particular, but everyone being like, oh my goodness, you're like a town official. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, yeah. And I always, I loved hearing you kind of as you're working on that project um i feel like it's just one of a very rewarding and very like you put a lot of labor into it but like it was very beautiful how it unfolded like how a small um like walking the dog like progressed to this very big um beautiful thing um, which i think is a trend that we probably see a lot in activism like one little thing um just kind of ripples and becomes something um, mm -hmm. which is great yeah. Do you want to talk about, um, was it called Project Pink? Am I making that up? Okay. <laughs> yeah. It was. Okay. Um, yeah. Project Pink was a menstrual hygiene products drive in my town. It ran um, in the fall of, or in the spring of 2016 and the fall mm -hmm. of 2017. And um, I started that project just because I remember I was looking at do something.org and there was um, a post on their website about um, the period poverty issue and the lack of access to menstrual project products and um, the consequences that that can have. And I just remember I was sitting downstairs in my dad's office and I saw it and I was like, I have to do a project on this mm. um, because it's so important and something that I'd never thought of before. It hit me that you, on um, a lot of the time, food pantries distribute, you know, lists of items that they need and hygiene products are listed there. And normally in the past, when I had looked at that, I always thought toothpaste, soap, mm -hmm. um, things like that. And I had yeah. never considered um, menstrual hygiene products before. Mm -hmm. So uh, I contacted the director of my local food pantry and asked him if it was something um, that would be useful or needed and, um, he said, you know, they would definitely accept donations. Um, so I started the drive and um, it was a lot harder to get donations than the book drive. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know if it's just um, because of the way it was structured or maybe the locations of the boxes because it was different than for a book drive um, or maybe if it had to do with the taboo around um, menstruation in general. Uh, but we did get about 200 boxes of pads and tampons, which is really awesome. 
and um, I delivered them to the food pantry and um, they were all used up within a month, um, which really spoke to the need for these products right in my own community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really eye-opening to me, um, which is why I held the second drive, because um, mm-hmm. they were very needed. Um, and I love that project because I, and I'm, I'm passionate about it, um, just the topic of menstrual ad- advocacy and menstrual access in general. Mm-hmm. Um, because like I said, it's something that I feel like maybe is a little bit overlooked mm-hmm. um, or not as widely considered. Yeah. Um, so right now in Massachusetts, um, I'm really excited about the fact that there are several efforts um, on different levels, both um, nonprofits and community organizations increasingly addressing the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's a bill in Massachusetts right now called the IAM bill. And that bill would actually increase access to menstrual hygiene products um, in schools, so middle school and up, um, prisons, and homeless shelters. Mm. Um, so since then, it's really great to see that there's really an effort behind it. In the yeah. State. Yeah, for sure. We um, at BC this past, I think it was fall, we did a drive for homeless shelters in Boston, and same experience. Like, not as many donations as other projects that I've done um I don't know I also did a little bit of thinking like it wasn't the best like advertised project I've ever done but also like I don't really know many college students who would like carry around a box of tampons on campus to like drop off you know what I mean like if the boxes were in like more open places like I don't know there are just so many factors and definitely speaks to the issue um that like it's so hard to get people to donate them and that like once we donated them to the homeless shelters like I don't know I feel like they always are the first things to go um I don't know I've volunteered at this particular like day center in Boston on um Southampton Street which is a big hub of homelessness and we always put out like tables of like clothes and mittens and stuff like that in the winter and some toiletries and those are always the first thing that women pick up um and like come back for more of so it's a big issue. The wheels are now turning in my head, like, hmm, what could I do with the podcast? And like, can I challenge listeners to like, I don't know, go donate to your local food pantry or homeless shelter or something like that, or the wheels are turning. <laughs> um, I think this project is a good example. Something, something that I really wanted to talk about with you um, is kind of I don't know, last week on the podcast, I talked to another fellow, like, teen activist um, who's also at BC with me now, and we were kind of reflecting upon our experience of being activists, Um, and I feel like something that, like, there's activists and non-activists, and there doesn't need to be a divide between the two, Um, but one of the things that creates the division is people don't always understand how to, like, see a problem and then immediately go to creating a project about it. Do you want to talk about how with Project Pink you started to, like, where did you put the boxes? How did you advertise in your town? Like, what does a project like this kind of look like logistically on a local town level? Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely took a lot of um, knowledge from the experiences I had with the book drive um, and implemented them with Project Pink. So, and I did a lot of research, um, and I always do this before my projects. Um, it's not 
all like you know trial and error I do you know go online and see what other people have done and mm -hmm. what they've found to be successful um, but of course every community is different too um, but for the project pink drive specifically um, in terms of um, donation box locations I really tried to um, contact local businesses that served women in particular mm -hmm. so there were um, hair salons yoga studios pharmacy um, dance studios um, places like that. Um, so I really tried to be kind of strategic with mm -hmm. that. Um, and then for advertising it, um, I made, uh, you know, flyers and kind of social media posts um, and put them around, I put the flyers around town and I spread the social media posts, um, at least with my friends and family, <laughs> that yeah. kind of network on social media. I don't have a pretty good platform like other people do. Um, and I'm okay with that. I think, you know, spreading flyers works pretty well, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I also, I, I tend to write press releases for all of my projects um, mm -hmm. because we have a local newspaper. It's called Rehoboth Reporter. It comes out every month. Um, and that's a great place um, for anybody in town to look for, you know, what's going on in the month, um, you know, local events or local news, things like that. Um, and then also, you know, broader newspapers, maybe from other towns that cover the communities, just in case I might get picked up. Um, and then I also, halfway through the drive, when I noticed that um, it was really difficult to bring in donations, I actually wrote a letter to the editor mm -hmm. and um, kind of wrote it addressed to um, the residents of my town, you know, just mm -hmm. kind of like a personal letter almost, um, acknowledging that the taboo is um, definitely present, you know, just in general in society, mm -hmm. um, but describing how much it means to people to have access to these products and just kind of putting a personal spin on it, um, just in case, you know, somebody saw it and they hadn't been sure before. Um, I actually, when I contacted a local business um, to see if they would have a donation box, um, and I was explaining what the project was about, they actually said to me, um, well, I can't put the box here because men come in here. Um, men come to my business and, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable having a box for that particular um, item. And so I understood that, you know, there was, you know, some sort of, you know, uncomfortability around yeah. it. So I think that was my best effort to kind of address the situation. But also, um, this is one of the things that I really struggle with, but you, even as much as you believe, or as much as I believe in something, um, I can't force other people to feel the same way. And I, even though I want them very much mm -hmm. um, to care and as much as I do and to um, participate, I can't, you know, make anybody do anything. Um, so I kind of, you know, stop the effort and mm -hmm. the editor um, because it's up to people what they want to do. Um, I actually remember one time, um, I think it was, I was at the local senior center because we were dropping off paper recycling and it's right next door. And um, I, I saw somebody I knew and she came up to me and handed me a huge bag of assorted menstrual hygiene products um, because she heard about the drive and really cared and she wrote a personal note for it. And um, so there's definitely a good mix too, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right, do you want to switch gears a little bit and I, I don't know, I remember we had a conversation on a bus at one point in time 
um, I think he was at UMass Dartmouth when Dr. Jayton was talking and we were talking about our education experiences and how they were similar and different and served us um, and such. Um, but would you like to tell me about your experience homeschooling and how that impacted um, activism for you? Homeschooling gave me, I think, a really unique opportunity, um, or, or opportunities like plural um, in, in many different aspects, but specifically, you know, for community service or activism, it really helped me um, kind of discover what I was passionate about and gave me the flexibility um, in terms of time um, to pursue uh, the causes I was passionate about. Um, I was, I became homeschooled in middle school um, because I was sick with Lyme disease and OCD and it was really hard for me to function 100% um, in school or public school. And um, so I homeschooled and um, once I started getting better, um, it kind of, homeschooling was, naturally just a way um, of education that I benefited from, that we just learned through that experience, my family and I. But it also provided me, like I said, with this really amazing opportunity to explore my own interests. Um, and um, it starts kind of just like I said about, you know, reading something on do something.org. With homeschooling, um, I was able to do a lot of my own research on the internet. Um, and, you know, if I was looking at a textbook um, and learning about a certain topic if I wanted to in the middle of the lesson, I could, you know, research something right out of the textbook and look it up. Um, so I think that's kind of what got um, the wheels turning, you know, um, in terms of me being interested in certain causes. And then eventually, like I said, I found Roots and Shoots through homeschooling, a homeschooling lesson on Dr. Jane. And um, with the help of Roots and Shoots, I was able to kind of put those interests and ideas into action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's so awesome. Um, I remember when we were younger, like thinking that that was the coolest thing because it, I don't know, being in traditional school, doing activism was just a struggle and I felt like it got in the way. Um, so I think that's really beautiful. Obviously both bring their own challenges. Um, that's awesome. Um, all right. So like you, I also um, learned about Roots and Shoots in like, I don't know, I think it was like an English class lesson or something like Dr. Jane and Roots and Shoots was like slipped into some lesson. And I remember being like, I want to do that. Um, and then we both ended up at the N in the NYLC, not at the NYLC. I wish there was like a common place that we could have met. Um, and I feel like we all knew each other so much better, um, like in person, but um, would you like to talk about kind of what you've learned from the NYLC in general and kind of from there? So we talked about like homeschooling, how that led up to learning about Roots and Shoots, but where did that go from when you joined? I, I think I learned so many things from mm -hmm. the council, you know, it's too. Yeah. hard to summarize. Um, mm -hmm. It's one of the I think one of the greatest opportunities of my life so far. Yeah. Um, and I, I continue learning things from the council. I'm in my fifth year, which seems really crazy mm -hmm. on the council. And I, every single meeting, um, you know, every single professional development opportunity, I'm constantly learning more. Um, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. But I think um, just kind of summarize and give an idea. I initially, I think 
being on the council really helped me find my voice. Um, I'm very soft-spoken. I'm often kind of shy at first. And uh, things like um, reaching out to com my community initially were kind of intimidating, you know, especially from a young age. I joined when I was 14. Um, and so the council, and especially Hope, um, who's the National Youth Leadership Council manager, she really encouraged me um, as well as my fellow council members like you um, to find my voice and to use it. And um, from there, um, I learned, you know, how to communicate with others, you know, especially in a professional setting, which is really important. Um, and I was able to learn that pretty quickly, mm -hmm. um, especially, you know, reaching out to somebody like the food pantry director, you know, you have to write a formal email in a way or a business mm -hmm. email. Um, I learned to, you know, collaborate with others, both on the council. We did a few council-wide projects, um, service trips, um, and then also just with people in my community, um, especially because I was working independently on projects, um, meaning I was, I came up with a lot of the ideas for the projects and, you know, worked on them. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to word this because I, as much as I was independent, I was also very supported by a lot of people and a lot of different people um, played huge roles in my projects from the council to my family, um, to my community. So, um, but, you know, in terms of like very narrowly <laughs> looking at my projects, I was working independently. Mm -hmm. And um, so collaborating with others was a really important skill that I learned from the council. Um, mm -hmm. And I think something that comes to mind, especially right now, it's a lesson that I've really um, been learning more about the past year is the art of storytelling and mm -hmm. how powerful it is. Um, at the past um, several summit trips, um, the council has a yearly week-long summit um, filled with amazing professional development opportunities and um, the ability to connect with each other. Um, they, we've had several workshops on storytelling and um, I remember the first workshop we had when I learned about this concept, it was very new to me and I remember thinking it was cool but I wasn't really sure what to do with it, you know. Um, but then the more I learned about it through the council, the more I started recognizing storytelling everywhere, um, both in my own life, but also in advocacy work. Um, mm -hmm. Storytelling is how we get grants. It's how we reach our community members and get their support um, and so many other things. And I think that right now is one of the most um, significant lessons um, and one of the ones that is you know, serving me very well right now. I don't know if I were that mm -hmm. correctly, but yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I'm really loving exploring that right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I was just remembering some of the workshops from that the summit in LA, and even like, do you remember the improv workshop that we did? <laughs> that I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that we're doing improv like that. Ah, <laughs> not exactly my cup of tea. But then like. I don't know, having hope, like, tie it into making us more comfortable, like, talking with people and sharing our stories and being able to just, like, on the spot come up with how to relate to someone um, and tell them our story and hear theirs, too. Um, I feel like there are so many, so many practical lessons from the MILC and even both of us blogging for um, Good for All News, like, that definitely was a jump even, even more into, like, being an adult and like communicating in business, um, like emails and writing and 
I don't know, that was one of my first kind of experiences, like publishing writing on a consistent basis. And I don't know, now like I have a minor in journalism now. Um, and I feel like a lot of that can be credited to that opportunity, um, which was just super cool to be able to report on things and to share things from our community with such a big audience, um, Dr. Jane's audience, really. So, yeah. Um, all right. I have another somewhat question, like deviating from where we were before. Um, but we in this season have been talking a lot about zero waste and um, ethical fashion and just so many things that are on my heart. And like, I just wanted to kind of take a leap into that area of interest for me on the podcast. And it's been received really well. Um, would you, you went through a huge kind of phase of getting into zero waste. Um, and I remember reading a lot of blogs that you wrote about it. Um, do you want to tell us some of your favorite zero waste swaps? Maybe some things that are easy to swap, some things that were hard for you to swap whatever you want to tell us. I'd love to. Um, I think I, I'll talk about some of the more different um, zero waste swaps that I've made because I think a lot of people know already um, about, you know, bamboo toothbrushes, mm -hmm. reusable bags and reusable water bottles um, and things like that. Uh, one of my favorite zero waste swaps um, is actually a vintage razor. Um, I got it for Christmas a couple of years ago and um, I got it because I was just kind of, you know, frustrated with the amount of plastic that, you know, we throw out with our plastic razors. Mm -hmm. And um, I've had it for, I think, almost two years now. It works really well. And also it looks a lot nicer than a plastic razor. Um, so I really love that swap. It's a learning curve to use a razor that's, you know, a very different type of blade. Um, and I'm still kind of getting used to it a little bit, but it's still worthwhile. Mm -hmm. um, and my dad actually got one too. Um, so that was kind of exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I would say also, I love mason jars and reusable straws. I know those are two more common ones, but they are two that I use for, I, I use very often. Mason jars can be used for almost anything. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love my reusable straw because I think some people love straws and some people don't. I'm one of the people who does. And mm -hmm knowing that I can use the same one over and over again, it's metal or glass, um, is a lot easier on my conscience than using plastic straws all the time. Yeah. yeah. And then I'd say my, my third favorite swap would be my menstrual cup, um, mm -hmm. because I, especially after, you know, doing Project Pink, um, thinking about, you know, how much um, I throw away with menstrual hygiene products if I'm using pads and tampons, um, and I, I don't remember the exact number, but I remember seeing at one point um, a social media post about how long it takes for those products to mm -hmm. decompose. So it's a really long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so definitely a menstrual cup. And mm -hmm. that's also a learning curve. But for it's me, it was worthwhile too. It's a learning curve. Um, yeah, those are all good ones. I, I've been looking at trying to change up like my razor situation. And I don't know, slightly scared to try it, but... I don't know. Like what, what's the worst thing? I don't know. Yeah. There are so many, so many good things, um, there. What was the organization that you were writing blog posts for during that period of time? It was called the V zero organization. Mm -hmm. Um, so basically helping people, you know, become more zero based. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's no longer an organization. Um, but it was definitely a great experience and it was, um, 
a, a really wonderful community of people um, trying to reduce their waste. Um, and I kind of like to make the point that um, the term zero waste is sometimes a little bit misleading. Um, people feel, including myself, have felt um, kind of some pressure um, mm -hmm. to completely reduce every ounce of waste. Um, I think, you know, I saw on social media a lot of pictures of people with their mason jars filled with their, you know, five years of trash. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something, you know, of course, you know, someone like me who really cares about, you know, reducing plastic waste and things like that want to kind of, you know, aim towards. But um, for a lot of people, it's an unrealistic thing um, to achieve just because of a variety of factors from like where you live to um, your so socioeconomic um, kind of situation. So um, I really like to use the term minimal waste um, mm -hmm. because it's, I, I think the term kind of focuses on just reducing your waste, you know, whatever you can reduce, even if it's just like one swap, like one reusable water bottle, that is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is so much better than before. Yeah. I remember who was, I was talking to someone recently, but I was telling them about the professional development speaker that we had who talked about being not vegetarian, but a reducitarian. That's kind of like the same idea. Like there's so much pressure in those labels. Um, but like, I don't know, some people thrive under pressure, but like some people don't. So just like reduce as much as you can and don't sweat it. Like the time that you spend like beating yourself up about like not being perfectly zero waste could be time spent like inspiring other people to do the same, make whatever swaps they can. Um, another thing that I've also been thinking about a lot is how, and I feel like you'll definitely get this, but chronic illness of any kind, like you can't be zero waste if you're on a ton of medications or have any medical devices or like it is just so hard. Um, so I feel like that is a pressure that people don't always realize. So along with like socioeconomic status and um, geographic elements, like your health is also a huge thing um, that you can't, I don't know, you can't be mad at yourself if you can't be perfectly zero waste because that's unrealistic and not the human experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot about um, both for veganism or vegetarianism and also zero waste. Um, I, I think a lot about the grocery store mm -hmm. and how um, everybody's grocery stores are different across you know, the country and I'm sure the world too. And um, you know, not every grocery store or not every region has um, health food stores even um, that provide certain alternatives um, for people to live a vegan lifestyle. Um, or vegetarian lifestyle um, and still stay healthy. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the same goes for um, reducing your waste. You know, not everybody lives in an area where you can bring your jars mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of like a Whole Foods, I, I don't go there because it's not near me, but I know that you can kind of get, you know, bulk shampoo or something like that. Not every grocery store has a, a bulk section. So um, grocery stores are often on my mind with both those topics. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And like, I don't know, I took a social work class last semester and we talked a lot about like food deserts. And obviously, I think that's something that we've talked about on the council and people have done things about food deserts. But like, there are just some areas that just straight up don't have a grocery store. Um, so you're working off of like a little, I don't know, like restaurants or like gas station convenience store situations. Um, so there's just such a wide array. And I feel like we can't 
I feel like a really dangerous thing about activism is being like, um, like this is this is what I'm doing to change my life. Everyone should do it. Um, whereas that's just not not the case. I feel like good cases of activism are empowering people to make life decisions that work in their own lives. Kind of like the Roots and Shoots formula where you can like apply it to, you can use it as a lens for any community. Um, not just like, I actually, I caught myself the other day. Um, I was, we had a local town election a month ago and there was some I don't know, controversy in town over something that kind of mattered and kind of didn't, and I wasn't fully up to date with. Um, but I wanted, I kept seeing signs around town and I was like, I want to like know what's actually going on, which is hard in a small town. Like pretty much you get town news through like the newspaper, newspaper, like that's a little difficult. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to vote in this election. Like I did my research, I'm going to do this. And then I was like, here's the here's the social media activist brain of mine thinking like I'm gonna um make a post and be like here's why you should vote in local town elections everyone should do it go out and do it whatever um and I'm like that's just not that's not healthy I mean yes yes good message but like I don't know like you do you like if you if your job allows you to go vote if you, like, have the time, the space, the energy to keep up with the local politics and be informed, like, if you want to, you should do it. Like, yes, you also do have a duty to vote, but, like, this local town election that didn't really impact too much, like, I don't know. I caught myself trying to make generalizations, like, I'm doing this so everyone should do it. But, mm. yeah. yeah. It's really important, I think, with activism, too. You'll be really open-minded and empathetic. Those are two of the roots and shoots, compassionate traits, mm -hmm. actually. Um, but you know, I think those are really important. And like you said, you know, it's it's kind of easy to be very passionate about something and want everybody to feel the same way and to take the same steps. Um, but you know, as I'm a sociology major, and that in itself has opened my eyes to you know all of the different connections um, in our world. And like you said, like you, know, some people might have a disability and might not have adequate transportation um, to be able to go vote. Um, some people in nursing homes need to have somebody to sign on to help them vote. Um, there's also voter suppression, voter ID laws. You know, there's so many things yeah. involved. I think another thing is, um, I know for myself, I, I often learn about something and become very passionate about it and uh, really have to work on really that open-mindedness um, instead of diving straight into something and not thinking out all the different sides of it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, I think, you know, a, a good project um, really tries to think out every different angle and how the message might be received by all different types of people and you know just something I'm constantly thinking about mm -hmm. yeah for sure and it goes back to what you're saying about storytelling it's like you want to um hear everyone's story who all the people at the table you want to hear their sides of it um I don't know I've had so many times like working at this homeless day shelter that like I I wanted to like charge in there with a project um but upon more, like, listening and, like, being with the people there, I realized that, like, either it didn't fit, it wasn't helpful, it wasn't helpful in the right way, like, 
my story was the only one I was listening to in those moments where I wanted to be like impulsive and start a project or a campaign. Um, but I really needed to listen to the stories of the people that I was serving first. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, sometimes um, there already are campaigns mm-hmm. working for that issue and it's uh, or cause and it's much more beneficial to offer your time and energy um, than starting your own, you know, initiative. Um, it, I think collective effort is really beneficial and, mm-hmm. you know, when you're working towards a common cause. And um, so that's, like I said, you, know, you have to think out all the angles. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually don't start a project right away when I come up with an idea. Sometimes I sit on it um, for a month or a couple of months and, you know, make sure that I first know enough about the issue. Um, and then I often try to, you know, get involved with maybe a local organization or reach out to other people and kind of like, I guess, like feel around and, you know, feel out, you know, all sides of everything, like I said. Mm, yeah, yeah, I agree for sure. Um, all right, we have to wrap up in a minute, but I, one of the big struggles, and I feel like we both hear Dr. Jane talk about this all the time, is not being overwhelmed by the amount of, like, things that are going wrong in the world, the amount of places that still need help, that the amount of places that we could help, um, and I feel like I definitely struggle with, like, stretching myself too thin, and, like, there are just so many directions I could go in, and so many places, and things that I want to do, um, what are some places, some things, some books, um, what are things that help you stay motivated, that keep you from getting overwhelmed, um, and where do you find the inspiration to keep going? That's a really good question. It's a big question, (laughs) yeah. Well, um, I would say I find my inspiration and motivation, um, both from education, which I talked a little bit about, you know, learning more and more, but also from other people, um, storytelling again is a big theme here. And um, also, I really look to the older generations before me and um, the younger generations. Um, I really think youth have an incredibly powerful voice collectively and individually. Um, and I see a lot of hope, just like Dr. Jean, in young people. And um, but I also find hope in people like Dr. Jean and her generation, and I find hope in my grandparents. And, um, you know, I sometimes I think, especially with issues like the climate crisis, for example, um, it's really easy to feel really down and feel like there's absolutely no action being taken. Mm-hmm. Um, then I look to people like Dr. Jean and other role models. Um, so while is one of my role models and um, see that they've been taking action for you know, years and they're still at it and they are still mm-hmm. hopeful and that gives me hope. Um, so I'd say mm-hmm. that's the answer. Yeah, I love that. And I love like taking, finding hope in like Dr. Jane and her generation because I don't know, it, it's different from the youth who like, they have this like bright burning passion that's like very overwhelming and like packed with energy. But then there's something very special to be said about Dr. Jane and people who just continuously keep showing up. Like they don't, they might get discouraged, but it's even more powerful that in whatever discouragement or hopelessness that they still show up. And like, they've been working for the same causes for so long. Um, And though they've seen change and improvement or maybe not, like they just keep showing up. Like the, the quiet, humble, like 
I don't know, day-to-day work. It's really beautiful. Um, all right. I always ask a few questions at the end of the podcast. And I feel like one that is very applicable here is you are a big reader, right? Um, would you like to share some of your favorite books with us for on this topic, not on this topic, um, anything, given that we've been talking about storytelling? Sure. Um, it is very hard to pick just a few books because like you said, I love reading. I would say, um, I'll kind of break it down into a couple of categories. For this topic of activism and advocacy, I would say On Fire by Naomi Klein is a fantastic book. Mm -hmm. I actually read it in an environmental sociology class and it was mind-blowing to me. It opened up, you know, so many windows um, in my mind. So I love that book. It's about um, the climate crisis and I would say just for like a really easy read, Moon Over Manifest is a fantastic book. I don't know the name of the author, but I got it when I was like 12. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love to come back to that book just for a really easy read if I'm looking for a really good story. Mm -hmm. Um, It's fiction, realistic fiction. Mm -hmm. But sometimes those books are good to come back to, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a good escape from, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. the things that go on in the world, um, a nice book that's familiar. It's nice to come back to, so I love that one. Um, Yeah, there there are a lot of other books, but I would probably take a very long time to go through them. (laughs) I think those are those are two good ones. I definitely want to read the On Fire book. Yeah, I don't know. I I need to. I used to be such a big reader, Um, and then I don't know. College makes it hard because you're reading so much for class anyway um, that it's hard to find time. But I don't know. I'm taking this little period of quarantine to get back into that, that like old love and it feels so good. Um, yeah. All right. So we have to wrap up, but is there any, um, kind of last advice that you would like to give to the young people who listen to this podcast? Um, the older people who listen to this podcast, any, anything that you'd like them to take away from this kind of storytelling that we've had? I think I would echo what I've been taught and say for anybody of any age, um, your voice is powerful and your story is powerful and it is meaningful. And um, you as an individual um, are also powerful and also remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that every individual, no matter what they have you know, done in their life, good or maybe not so good, or you know, what path they've taken, I think everybody has an intrinsic goodness to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sometimes it's important to hear that as humans, especially in the world today. Um, I think it's very simple advice and it's not necessarily original to me, Mm -hmm. Um, but those are two messages that have been, um, once once I've sat down and thought about them, they've been really impactful to me. And Mm -hmm. I'd like to echo that to the listeners. I love that. That's so beautiful. All right. Thank you so, so much, Abby. A big thank you to Abby for being on this episode of the To The Heights podcast. It was such a joy to catch up with you. Um, And thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in and listening. Um, I hope you are enjoying this season, Hope in Humanity. Um, I really, really have been, um, and I have some really exciting guests, um, who are coming up soon. Next week's guest is a familiar face, um, 
and a very funny, funny person. Um, bonus points for whoever can guess who that is. Um, but he's really awesome and he'll be coming on next week. Um, and then we do have some pretty exciting big name guests for the end of the season, um, as well as an Ask Olivia episode about sustainability, Laudato Si, um, anything that we've talked about this season. So you can keep sending in questions for that episode. You can either DM us on any social media at to the heights CTV, or you can shoot us an email um, to the heights podcast at gmail.com, or there is a contact form on grexley.com. As always, um, this podcast is a production of the Grexley Podcast Network, um, and you can find all podcasts in the network at grexley.com, as well as our Patreon if you feel called to support the mission. Or um, our merch shop is also on there. And hint, those clothes are sustainable um, and ethically sourced through Redbubble, which is awesome and was a criteria for sure. Um, criteria. I can't talk. I'm a podcaster who can't talk. Um, all right. I think that might be all I have for you guys. Um, I really hope that you take to heart Abby's message and just... I don't know. I feel like a big theme is definitely the power that your voice has, the power that you're finding your voice has, and also the power of curiosity. Um, something that always I really loved and admired in Abby um, is, like she said, how she would, was homeschooled and had the freedom um, to kind of step away from whatever she was studying and dive deeper into something that was interesting her. Um, so I challenge you to be curious about one thing, to do research about one thing, to actually read the article, not just the headline of that one thing that you're kind of interested in. Um, I don't know, pick up a book, pick up, just Google something. Um, I challenge you to be a little bit more curious this week, um, in a special way. And let me know if it's something interesting. Um, let me know what you find. All right. I think that is all I have. I hope you all have an amazing week um, and that you are climbing the mountains in your own lives. Um, let us know anything you take away from this episode, anything, any questions you have um, at To The Heights CGV on all social media, or you can find me at OliviaRose underscore art or OliviaRoseArt.com. All right. Talk to you next week and keep on reaching to the heights.